0: And welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm editor at large at SlashFilm.com. And joining me today, he is the man who played Father Joe in the 1997 film Boys Life Two, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? <laughs> I, I am trying to wrap my mind around Father Joe. What is Father Joe? I'm not 100% sure, but according to the IMDb, uh, Boys Life 2 is a compilation of four short films about homoerotic situations involving <laughs> young men. Uh, okay, uh, okay. And you were okay. in a segment, it, it was four short films, and you were in a segment called Trevor. So.
1: Trevor! So this is Father John, which is occasionally referred to as Father Joe, uh, simply as a kind of misprint on the IMDb website. Uh, as far as I re- remember, I was Father John. But, but David, this was a very important film because I learned the power of clothing on this film. It, it was a very low-budget movie, and as Father Joe slash John, I was given the clerical black outfit with the white collar. We didn't have any trailers. Uh, we had no place to go to the bathroom, and which is very important, by the way, when you're shooting anywhere in the city.
0: Or in general, just for life, I would say.
1: Yeah, in in life, it's important. Otherwise, you're just like the pooch, where the world is your toilet. But (laughs) I was walking down East L.A., where we were filming this, in my priest outfit, asking people at various restaurants if we could use their bathrooms. And everybody let me in. Everybody let me in and let the crew people in. Everybody was trying to give me free food, too, and I, it took me a while to realize it be, it's because I was wearing the collar. And and so it's the power of clothing, David. Never underestimate it, it and no matter what you do, I right, will no matter what that your,
0: future, uh, your future holds for you. Surely a Tobolowsky truism that holds for life and for a great deal of people. Well— I gotta start this episode of the Tobolowski Files with a couple of announcements. First of all, we want to give a big shout out and a thank you to all the people who came to our recent live shows in Boston and New York. Stephen, wasn't that a lot of fun? That was awesome. And I and I can't thank everybody enough. It was wonderful. Someone actually I think the, the highlight was someone actually had flown in from Poland to New York. Just to come see you live, I believe. Right? Is that right? It was unbelievable. He he
1: had listened to Good Day in Auschwitz, that story, and that's where uh, members of his family had died. And he said he wanted to meet the man who who wrote those stories.
0: So he had, I was so moved meeting him. I can't tell you. It was pretty incredible to meet. Yeah, to meet him and to know that he flew like many many hours just to come see you uh, perform a you know sixty to ninety minute show. So incredible stuff. Thank you guys all for coming out. Uh, I also wanted to give an apology from me, David Chen, to all the listeners of The Tobolowsky Files because it's been so long since uh, there's been an episode of The Tobolowsky Files, and a lot of that has been because of me uh, and sort of the stuff I've been doing. I've actually been running around the country interviewing for jobs, but I'm happy to report I finally got a new job, and I'll be moving soon to Seattle. And I'm extremely excited about this because The Tobolowsky Files currently already broadcast live in Seattle on KUOW, and we've performed at the Neptune Theater, we'll soon be performing at the Moore Theater there. Uh, So I'm extremely excited. That being said, uh, of course, me being so neglectful of this wonderful show, I I almost felt like I should fire myself at some point, Tobo. Ever had that feeling where you feel like you're neglecting your responsibilities? Uh, not to the extent you have neglected
1: your responsibilities to us, David. Well, I, I just
0: want <laughs> I just want to support
1: you that had you had fired yourself, I think it would it would just temporarily, I think it could have been a good decision on your part, just executive wise. Well thanks but for that. <laughs> I am so thrilled for your job. And I'm thrilled for what it could mean for the future of the shows. And uh, but but you know in life, David, we have to always be prepared. With sudden shifts and and changes in the arena in which we're performing in. Now, actors know this all the time. Uh, Or or sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't, David. You know, uh, a few years ago, I was on the set of a sitcom and I witnessed something horrible. I saw an actor get fired. Now, he didn't know it yet. Oh, he was still acting away. But I knew the actor was going to be fired because I was standing inconspicuously behind a cluster of executives from the network at a run-through on the third day of rehearsal. One man in an expensive suit was standing next to a woman in an equally impressive suit. They were watching the scene that featured the actor in question. At one point, the man in the suit turned to the woman and whispered, Well, this doesn't work. She whispered back, I know, we'll get someone else. The man nodded. And it was done. The next day, there was someone else playing the part. I'm sure the actor was devastated when he got the call that evening, probably around dinner time. My guess is that an associate producer gave him the word, told him that they were sorry it didn't work out this time, but they would call him on the next project. You know, the one that doesn't exist. The actor would walk back to the kitchen, gesture for his wife to follow him out of earshot of the children, He'd tell her the bad news, she would hold him, and it was done. He left saying the phrase, actors end up saying more than any other. What happened? I'm no seer, but I think I can answer that question. A little background. The standard schedule for a sitcom is five days from start to finish. The first day, the entire cast reads the script for the network executives. The executives laugh at everything. That's their job. Believe me, it's harder than you think. Then you start to rehearse. The morning of the second day, you get a rewritten script. You work all day putting the show together, and at the end of the day, there's a run-through for the writers and producers. This is what I call the friendly run-through. This is the run-through for the home team. The third day, you get another rewrite, and a new script, and new blocking. You rehearse the first half of the day, and then network executives come in and watch. This is not the home team. If there's something not working at this show, someone will be fired. But it will never be the star, and it will never be the real reason why the show isn't working, which is usually that it wasn't funny to begin with. In our case, the actor in question was quite good. He was funny on day one and day two. On day three, he felt confident. He was a team player. When the network came in for the run-through, he watched all of the other scenes before his. He laughed. He clapped. He supported everyone else. Then it came time for him to do his scene. He jumped from being in the audience to being a performer with no transition, no preparation. His scene started. He missed his first cue. He stumbled through his first laugh line and looked confused. I'm sure he was wondering where yesterday's performance went when he needed it. All of the ease he had previously possessed had deserted him. It wasn't terrible. He did fine. If he had an advocate on the show, they would have said to the network executives, Don't worry, I know this guy. He was great yesterday. But he didn't. So he got the bad phone call. The actor made a common mistake. He confused practice with preparation. Practice usually involves some form of repetition. It's like scales in music or running over your lines, floor work and dance. Practice is between you and yourself. It's for you to rise to the highest level of your expertise. Preparation is a different animal. Its purpose is to make it possible to convey everything you've learned in practice to others. The tricky thing about preparation is that it changes depending on who the others are. Is it a group of executives on run-through day? Is it a full house of over a thousand people opening night on Broadway? Is it a camera coming in for a close-up? Or a microphone five inches away for a voiceover? The actor must understand the arena he's in and prepare accordingly. Otherwise, he could end up scratching his head and asking, What happened? It took me years to understand the difference between practice and preparation. I didn't learn about it on the set. I didn't learn about it on stage or in an acting class. The lesson came wrapped in a completely unrelated package. A horse taught me. Yes, a horse. Life has a funny way of making sure you're paying attention. This is a bittersweet story to tell. Because I had to say goodbye to my horse this year. His name was Yokult. Well, his name is still Yokelt. He didn't die. I had to sell him. A man in Virginia bought him. I drove out to the barn to give him one last carrot. I held him. I whispered that I love him and that I knew he would be happy in his new home. It was a scene that had a sap factor beyond anything I'd ever seen on the Hallmark Channel. It was worse than the special episode of ER that had the busload of high school kids that's run off the road on prom night. His name, Jokult, is Icelandic for glacier. It was inspired by his color, white with a light gray mane. Beautiful. His name, Jokult, could have also been inspired by his steadiness or his power. I loved him dearly. I rode him for almost four years, That's how long it took for him to train me. In 2008, I broke my neck horseback riding in Iceland. Not on Yokel, but on a far inferior horse. The result was I couldn't ride for months. After I recovered, I tried to get back in the saddle. On my first ride, I took a slow turn around the horse barns. Yokel tripped and threw me over his head. Just by luck, I was able to break my fall without re-breaking me. I stopped riding again. I got my nerve up once more about two years ago. We started working in the arena. I was shocked I'd gotten so out of shape. Horseback riding is a lot more exerting than people think. It's not like sitting and watching television while the horse does all the work. It's like standing on a moving bus for half an hour without holding onto the handrails. You have to use a lot of muscles to stabilize yourself to keep from flying into space. I figured I'd lost my endurance during my neck recovery. But it was worse than that. As it turned out, I had blocked coronary arteries. I had heart surgery. Now, with a formerly fractured neck and a currently broken breastbone, I couldn't take the chance anymore. I learned a hard rule about life. If you can't afford to fall, you can't afford to ride. It isn't the falling that's the problem. It's the horse. It's incredibly empathic. It can sense any tension. No matter how much I could mentally prepare, the horse would always know I was guarding myself. That would make him tense and could lead to erratic behavior that would almost guarantee disaster. When I recognized I could never ride him again, I signed the papers. I couldn't stand to think of Jokholtz shut up in a stall all day long. It wasn't fair. He was going to a new home and a happy life. I find horses inspirational. I learned a lot about myself when I learned to ride. My trainer was one of the best, Stainer Siga Bornsen. His father, Didi Barterson, is a legend in Iceland. He's in the Guinness Book of Records as one of the most honored athletes in history. Stainer wanted me to ride competitively. I always refused. I told him as an actor, my life was competition. In my time off, I wanted to get away from that. But over the next several months, Stainer convinced me. I entered a horse show. I found that just as it was impossible for me to turn off the desire to win every part I auditioned for, it was impossible to prepare for a horse show without wanting to win. Not just to do well. I wanted to win it all. We didn't start small. My first show was in the main arena at the Los Angeles Equestrian Center. Yokel and I practiced with Stainer for months. The night before the event, Stainer told me to meet him at the equestrian center. The complex was beautiful and quiet at night. Just the sounds of horses in their stalls with the occasional trailer arriving for the contest. The lights were on in the main arena. Stainer was standing there alone. He smiled and gestured grandly and bowed, How are you, my friend? Nervous, I said. "'Of course you are. This is good. You will be alert tomorrow.' "'Yeah, if I could sleep tonight,' I said. Stainer laughed and said, "'You will be fine.' "'Stainer,' I said, "'I don't think I've been this nervous going into a network audition. Why is that?' Stainer walked around silently and thought with his hands on his hips. "'Maybe it is because so much is out of your control.' while all of you is being judged. Yes, I laughed. All those things and more. What is it, my friend? Stainer said. I took a deep breath. Stainer, I really don't want to lose. Stainer raised his eyebrows and said, that is important. That will help you tomorrow. Many people are so afraid of losing, they just give in to it. They quit. The feeling you have is good. Losing is not an option. Tomorrow, every moment will be focused and full. Just you and your boy. And let me tell you something about Yokult. Yes, I said. Stainer leaned in and whispered to me in the middle of the vast empty arena as if he had a secret he was hiding from the gods. He said, he loves it. He loves the competition. He will be filled with so much power tomorrow. You will see. Well, at that point, the blood drained from my head as I pictured Yokel running amok, dragging me around the ring with my foot caught in the stirrup. Stainer said, We've worked hard, Stephen. You and Yokel work well together. There's nothing that will happen tomorrow that you haven't done perfectly before. But what we need to do now is prepare. How do we do that? I asked Stainer. We have to put more things in your control. Tonight we will visualize what will happen tomorrow. Stainer gestured for me to follow him. We started walking in silence around the arena, tracing the path I would ride in the competition. I was riding in the novice category. In the lingo of horse shows, that doesn't mean beginners. But as a novice, you only have to ride in one direction, counterclockwise. That's because horses are like people. Most of them are right-handed or right hooped as the case may be. Their strong leg would be on the outside of the ring. That would make their strides more balanced and their turns more powerful. Stainer and I continued to walk in silence. His face was showing some concern. I asked, "'What's wrong?' Stainer shook his head and continued to walk, sensing something with his body. He stopped, looked around him, went up on his toes and down again. "'The footing,' he said. "'It's wrong for Icelandic horses.' The sand is too deep. Icelandics want a firm footing. Stainer continued to walk. We got to the corner of the arena, and Stainer went down on one knee. He signaled for me to join him. I knelt as if in prayer. Stainer's face lit up with a huge smile. He held up a handful of sand and let it fall through his fingers. Now I understand, he said. Do you feel it, my friend? I shook my head. No. He winked at me and said, This is not a true arena. It's not level. I stared at Stainer with absolutely no comprehension. He smiled as if he had found the last letters to the Sunday crossword puzzle. He said, the footing is too soft for our horses, but it's even deeper in this corner. This must be the low spot. Right, I said. So what does that mean? It means, my friend, that you know this and no one else does. You're here tonight. You are preparing. No one else is. Tomorrow, everyone else will be surprised. Everyone but you. They will head into this corner and the horses will hit the soft sand and they will lose their gait. They will have points deducted. And I won't, I asked. No, you won't. Because you will give Yoko just a little bit more leg going into the corner and he won't fall out of the gate. When the judge asks for the canter, everyone will hit this spot and falter. They'll begin to trot. I want you to power through the corners tomorrow, especially this one. And don't get close to any other horse, because they may trip and bump into you and scare Yokeld. Be in his ear the whole time. Let him know the two of you are always together. Keep him focused. Let the others be punished by the arena. The next day was worse than opening night on Broadway. I couldn't eat. I couldn't think. I kept running through the routine in my head. The Icelandic is a five-gated horse, which means it has five distinct ways of moving. In this contest, we would have to display four of the gates and what they call an extended or fast gate of our choice at the end. We would be judged on form, power, and to a lesser degree our horsemanship. We started in the fast gate, called the tolt. It's a four-beat gate. I made sure I pressed Yokel through the low corner. He never missed a beat. Then we went on into the trot. It's a two-beat gate. The judges look for the horses to extend. They want the horse to seem like he's floating. That takes power. That was one of Yokel's strengths. He always seemed like he was floating. Then came the walk. This is the gate where the real beginners get lazy. They think a walk doesn't take work. The judges want to see that the horse is moving with purpose and power through the walk. One judge told me he always looks at the tail. If the horse's tail is swinging side to side, he's working properly. Then they call for the canter. This is the three-beat gate. It's a gallop. This is the run. This is full power. This is the moment I was waiting for. My mind cleared. I remembered Stainer telling me to steer clear of all the other horses and to stay away from the low spot of the arena. The trick with the canter is that you want to start the horse in the right place. You want to be going into a corner. This naturally makes the horse turn at the beginning of the gate. This focuses him to extend his strong outside leg to begin the gate properly, or as they say in horse talk, to start him on the right lead. We were walking toward the low corner. I knew the judges were going to change gates very soon. I slowed Yokel down and whispered to him, Are you ready, my boy? He wiggled his ears. Are you ready to fly? Do you want to go? His ears twitched. I could feel energy building up under the saddle. I whispered, Do you want to go? Shall we go? Yokel was trembling under me. The judges over the loudspeaker called out, Riders, ask your horses to canter. Please show a canter. I put my crop away and whispered, Go, my love. Yokel tore into the low corner with one horsepower. Dirt flew. I could hear the collective gasp from the audience. Yokel raced down the track. We began lapping the other horses. I took him to the inside so there would be no interference. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw the other horses stumble in the low corner and lose the gate. They went into a trot, just as Stainer predicted. After about six times around the track, at full speed, Yokel turned his head sideways a little and looked up at me as if to say, "'Is this okay? We've been running for a long time. Should I take it down a notch?' I leaned over and whispered, "'It's your time. Go, big fella. You can go.' And he slammed into another gear. I was taking the corners at a 45-degree angle. It was like motocross. He was magnificent. We finished our ride and went into the holding area. We were asked to remount for the judging. In Icelandic course judging, they announced all of the runners up first. They called out the riders' names one at a time. I waited in line. They got to fourth place, third, second. Then they announced the winner. Yokelt. Stainer laughed and gave a fist pump from the entrance of the stadium. He pointed at me, then pointed to his head. He winked at me as if he just sent me a secret message. We were brought to the center of the ring and given our blue ribbon. For the photograph, they toss a shiny object in the air so the horse will look up for the picture. Yokel, being a true champion, didn't need any coaxing. He looked straight at the camera. I, however, was distracted by the shiny toy. In the picture of her victory, Yokel looked like a pro while I was staring at the roof watching the sequin beanbag. The judge came up to me afterwards and said Yokel gave one of the best performances he had ever seen. We were the only horse and rider not to fault in the corner. He asked me what our secret was. I told him. I knew it wasn't a true arena. Jokel and I won several events in a row. We were ranked number two on the West Coast in the national ratings. This was helped by the fact that there were almost no horses on the West Coast. But we were fearsome. The competition would see us coming, and you would see them saying a silent, oh, no, and rock back on their heels. I would love that. I still got nervous before the shows, but not like the first time. Not the opening on Broadway nervous. I didn't walk around the arenas anymore before the contests. I trusted Yokel to know what to do, and I trusted my instincts to respond quickly. Funny how we always give our instincts so much credit, especially when we get lazy. A year later, we were back at the equestrian center for another competition. I fully expected to win. The riders were lined up, and the judge told us to take our horses up to a slow tolt. That's the fast walk gait. All went well. Yokel was happy and excited to be competing. He lifted his legs high as if he were doing a Spanish walk. Lovely. Then the judge called for a fast tolt. This was the part we loved. Yokel was so powerful. He had a taste for speed. We began to pick up the pace when the horse next to us tripped and fell into Yokel. Yokel was started and jumped forward, out of the gate, out of the tolt. I tried to gather him. At this point, I couldn't tell whether the horse and rider next to us was out of control. She gave her horse some leg, and they began to gallop. Horses are herd animals. Contagion is how they survive. Yokel began to gallop with them. I tried to slow him down. The rider behind me began shouting, Whoa, whoa, at the top of her lungs, which had, of course, the opposite effect on everyone. I finally got Jokult back into the tolt when another rider decided to use her whip on her horse to get it in line. She swung and accidentally hit Jokult, and we were off to the races again. After a few terrifying moments at high speed, I stopped him. He reared right in front of the judge's box. I turned Jokult into a circle to calm him down, and we finished the event. After a long time deliberating, the judge made the call as to which horses would get into the finals. Yokel and I made the cut. Barely. We were at the bottom of the field. It was the worst score we had ever gotten. I was furious. I felt that the other riders ruined the event, losing control of their horses, yelling commands, and even hitting my horse, and never even apologizing afterwards. I put my fella up. I gave him some water. I had to wait for the finals. I was walking around the grandstands, looking at all the events in progress, but I couldn't focus on any of them. I had a cloud over my head. I didn't even notice when I walked into our judge. Literally. He introduced himself. His name was Michael. They had flown him in from Copenhagen to judge the Icelandic contests. I apologized for almost running him over. He said, no, no. I'm glad you did. I was looking for you. Come with me. I began walking with the judge. He said, I wanted to talk to you about what happened out there this morning. What do you think you were doing? I looked at him defensively, but before I could put my foot into my mouth, he continued, I should have disqualified you. I didn't. You clearly have the best horse, and you're a good rider, I could tell that. You handled the situation terribly. You did not protect your talent. Your talent is your horse. He is magnificent. You allowed him to get into all sorts of trouble he couldn't handle. You rode through the middle of several weak riders who were out of control. Then you got angry. Then you blamed them. You had no clarity. The judge stopped and looked at me. He held up one finger on each hand in front of my eyes and said, You think riding is here. What you see in front of you, between my two fingers, it's not. Then he took his fingers and pointed them at his temples. It's here, between my two fingers. For five minutes, the arena is between your ears. All of your training and all of your practice is useless, unless you know that. I wanted you to ride in the finals. I wanted to see what you could do. Keep it between your ears. Your horse will thank you. The judge patted me on the back and said, Now, can I buy you a cappuccino? No, thank you, I said. I feel like I owe you one after that lesson. The judge laughed and said, I will allow it, but understand in no way will it affect the way I judge the finals. You are on your own. That afternoon, it was time to ride. I got Yokel ready, brushed and saddled him. I talked to him. I told him we were going to have a good ride. It wouldn't be like it was this morning. They called for us to come to the arena. I mounted the big fella. He was full of it. It was a combination of performance energy and bad memories from earlier in the day. The bad thing about horses is that they never forget. We walked into the ring. I was determined to do one thing, to keep it all between my ears. We took our places. We began warming up, walking around the ring. The judge called for us to move into a slow tolt. I gave Yokel the cue. He took it up immediately. That's the good thing about horses. They never forget. I saw some of the riders from the morning moving close to me. I focused on Yokel and gave him room to move freely. The more I focused on him, the more relaxed I became. Magically, as I relaxed, I became more aware. We effortlessly moved away from all of the other riders. The judge called for us to move to a fast halt. Again, I focused on Yoko's stride. He seemed to be in perfect balance. I had a sense where everyone else was in the ring. I wasn't concerned about them. I just wanted to make sure they stayed out of my way. My intent was to allow Jokult to be able to shine. We were in a zone. I felt his legs moving under the saddle. I just had to think of adjustments and he would respond. We finished It was a perfect run. Yokult was happy at the end of the ride. We left the arena, and the judge gestured to me with the fingers pointing to his temples and gave me a thumbs up. Yokot and I came in third. The judge met me on the way back to the barn and said, "You see the cappuccino didn't help you at all. I just wanted you to know that you would have won if you hadn't had such terrible scores in the morning." This is the way you should ride every event if you want to be a champion. You have quite a horse. You owe it to him to be clear. Don't ever let him be bound by your limitations. The relationship between riding horses and acting is legendary. Or not. Even though it's not a connection that's often discussed, I think Stanislavski would approve. Stanislavski was the director of the Moscow Art Theater at the end of the 19th century. He brought Anton Chekhov's plays to the world and achieved enduring fame by his explorations into what makes great actors great. This study was called The Method. It came to America with the group theater and later with the Actors Studio in New York. Some of the students of Stanislavski's method include some of our most cherished actors, Marlon Brando, Montgomery Clift, Paul Newman, James Dean, Gary Cooper, and yes, Marilyn Monroe. Stanislavski studied what all great actors had in common. While watching the performance of a famous actor in Moscow, he noted, He possessed complete relaxation of the muscles, coupled with a maximum of general concentration. I note that these are the same two components required to ride a horse. Stanislavski continued, I felt that all of his attention was concentrated on his side of the footlights and not on ours. He was occupied with what was happening on the stage and not in the auditorium. And I can't help but think of the poor actor on our sitcom that was fired for being in the audience too long instead of preparing to be on stage. And succinctly put by Michael, the judge from Copenhagen, pointing to his temples, you have to keep it between your ears. If the purpose of practice is to remove any surprises and rough edges through repetition, then preparation is finding the combination of relaxation and concentration needed to perform. It is putting yourself in the true arena so that your work will have breath and life. Practice gives your talent a foundation. Preparation allows your talent to emerge. It's a constant challenge for the actor to know what and where his arena is. Surprisingly, I found one of the greatest enemies to a proper preparation is emotion. Actors think they're in a constant quest to feel something powerful. I've seen many actors mooding up before they walk out on stage. Pursuit of powerful feelings has led many an actor to yell a lot in scenes or punch walls or throw chairs. I've never punched walls or thrown chairs in life. I have seen a wall punched once in the real world, but that was by an actor, so that doesn't count. I'm embarrassed to say I have thrown a chair once. That was in my audition for the television series Heroes. One of the producers asked me to be dangerous. I had no idea what that meant other than pretend I was a television producer, so I threw a folding chair. Usually it's men who attack furniture, but not always. I went to see an early preview performance of a play that took place in an English boarding school. There was a dramatic scene in Act 2 in which the headmistress lays down the law to another teacher about how things are going to be done at the school. The emotional temperature of the scene rose to a climax. The actress playing the headmistress said something to the effect of, I will not have this at my school, at which point she hit the desk with her hand hard. It was an impressive moment. I was willing to accept it as it was presented. A moment of high drama. I understood the actor's shorthand. It said, I'm feeling a lot, I must hit a desk, and are the reviewers here tonight? I went back later in the run. We approached the desk scene. I wondered if it had changed over the course of the last few weeks. The scene seemed curiously off balance. I could see the actress playing the headmistress was not really involved with what was happening on stage. She had no preparation. She relied on repetition. The result was she didn't listen to what the actors were saying. Then in the middle of the scene, her face flushed. Her internal engine started revving, and I said to myself, damn, she's going to hit that desk again. She walked over to the desk a little earlier than she did in the preview performance. She was getting eager. She got her hand in punch position and then smacked the desk precisely on cue. This time, it did not have the same effect. Even in dramatic shorthand, there was no drama. She didn't know it, but she had changed the arena. She wasn't in the play anymore. She had fallen in love with hitting a desk. A gesture. Dramatic gestures are very fickle lovers. They're notoriously insincere. The scene became a springboard into nothing. I went to the play one more time and I saw the terminal stage of an actor in the wrong arena. In the blackout, before the big scene, the volunteer stage crew missed the spike marks. The desk ended up in the wrong place. It was off by about a foot. The scene began. The actors played it with the same blocking. The headmistress still wasn't listening. But now, she wasn't even looking. She was gearing up for the big moment. I watched with the fascination of seeing a car accident in slow motion. She moved into position, but the desk wasn't there. She was locked into her arena. She raised her fist and swung at nothing. With no opposing mass to counterbalance the SWAT, she gave herself a virtual karate arm throw. She flipped over onto the ground and started rolling across the stage. The other actors stood in shock for a moment before they rushed to her aid. Despite the unintentional low comedy, the actress playing the headmistress achieved success in the arena she chose to work in. She wanted to find a gesture that defined her character. In this case, it was someone who was out of balance. She wanted the moment to be memorable. She succeeded beyond her wildest dreams. No one was hurt, thank goodness. I have been in both situations. I've been the actor with no preparation clinging to a dramatic gesture like a rabbit's foot. And I've directed actors that are in love with a particular pose. I could say from firsthand experience how difficult it is to convince a performer that they are in the wrong arena, that they've fallen in love with the superficiality. I know from an actor's perspective It doesn't feel superficial. It feels right. When you're surrounded by so many unknowns, not saying your own words, not wearing your own clothes, not moving around your own house, and having so many strangers watching you, it's remarkably satisfying to grab on to the familiar. In this way, acting is like life. It's easy to confuse familiar with good. But the practice gesture is worse than a crutch. It's a full-bodied cast. Stanislavski described it perfectly. He said an actor relies on poses, gestures, flourishes, vocal inflections, and indications of human passion when he feels himself utterly helpless on the stage and stands there with an empty soul. I would add that preparation is what allows your soul to enter your work. What are some of the elements to safeguarding your soul in your work? What are some of the keys to having a proper preparation? First of all, protect the first read-through of a script. It will have all the clues as to what the arena is. Don't make things difficult by not reading an entire script or reading it distracted by television phone calls or Facebook. Don't try to perform material when you don't know what you're doing. Actors never feel like they have enough time to prepare for an audition. It's a temptation to take a stab at a part blindly. Premature acting leads to memorizing bad choices. Good choices will start to come magically when you know what you want in the scene from the other characters. When you rehearse a scene, don't direct the other actors. You put yourself on the other side of the footlights, as Stanislavski would say. It's hard to be in the true arena when your body is on the stage and your head is in the audience. You may think you're helping your partner, but you're only crippling yourself. Never make fun of the project you're working on. Don't make fun of your character. Don't make fun of a problem you're having with a scene. Any artistic endeavor is like a horse. It has very sensitive feelings. It's easily embarrassed and shamed. It will turn its back on you if you don't treat it with respect. And this doesn't just apply if you're working on Hamlet or Death of a Salesman. This is also true if you're doing a scene with a rat in Garfield with peanut butter smeared in your ears so the rat will come near you. In fact, it's especially true then. One of the biggest obstacles to a good preparation is spending lots of time fantasizing about being successful. When I was 10 years old, I used to practice my Oscar acceptance speech in the shower. I should mention, this was for my second Academy Award. My speech was incredibly long as I humbly thanked all the little people that helped make this film possible. I was particularly gracious to Gary Cooper, who lost to me two years in a row. This delusion is not the sole domain of children. I recently went on an audition for a small independent film. The writer-director asked me if I had any questions for him about the film, and I said, yes. How do you see the movie? He said, Stephen, I see it winning Sundance. When I started writing it last year, I thought, I want to write something that will win Sundance. I know it sounds crazy, but I think I've done it. I think this is it. I was startled by how low he had set his sights. I have nothing against Sundance, but if you're going to use vanity as an inspiration, why not go for world peace? Our culture is wallpapered in fabricated stories of riches and success. It's hard to hear the voice of our talent that demands our full attention. Sometimes I've been on sets of successful television shows where one or more of the leading actors who make over six figures a week will ask me in all sincerity... If I still direct free theater in Los Angeles, and if I did, could I call them to do a part? They felt like they were starving to do something of quality. One of the greatest obstacles to a good preparation is the simple fact that it's so easy for the arena to change for reasons beyond our control. It was near the end of November. I was in one of my favorite positions, Horizontal. The phone rang. It was a call from my agents in New York. I was completely surprised. In the past several years, I've averaged about zero calls from the office in New York. It started off like a normal conversation. They were asking me how I was doing, how the family was. I said, fine. Part of me was calm and enjoying the back and forth. Part of me was nervous and afraid that this was a part of a fundraiser. Reality made me guess they had lined up an audition for a television show that would shoot in New York, and they wanted to know my thoughts on being bi-coastal at the age of 50. Wrong on all counts. They cut to the chase and asked me if I would fly out to audition for an upcoming play at Lincoln Center with plans to move to Broadway in the spring. Pause. I kept telling myself to keep breathing. I asked what the show was. They said it was mornings at 7. This was a play I knew very well. I had just directed it a few months earlier at one of those free theaters in Los Angeles. It's a play that stood the test of time. It is the quintessential great American play. It was nominated for Best Play when it debuted in 1939. It didn't win. It was beaten out by another quintessential American play, Our Town. They wanted to look at me for the part of Homer, I knew this was a fabulous part. It was funny. It was heartbreaking. It was an unorthodox romantic role. This is something I rarely get to play. Even though I felt like jumping up and down and screaming, I affected a calm tone and told my agent I loved the play and would certainly be willing to give it a shot. He said, read it over again. We'll talk tomorrow. I hung up and walked downstairs. Anne was on the computer. I told her we needed to talk. I filled her in as to what little I knew, and she said, Do you want to do it? Funny how simple questions change over time. It's one thing to be in high school and want to be a babe on Broadway. It's another thing to be a couple with no roots anywhere, like Beth, my girlfriend from my earlier years, and myself, traveling wherever, whenever we wanted, doing anything. It was another to be a husband and a father of two and consider moving 3,000 miles away for an undetermined amount of time. I told Anne it was exciting. She asked who was directing, who was in it, how much it paid. I had no idea. But I thought that's good. The unknown always makes indecision look like reason. That night, sleep was hard to find. I thought about my previous Broadway experience— As a spectator, I saw Beth's wild ride through the stars with Crimes of the Heart. That one hit show on Broadway made her career. As an actor, I was in Beth's second play to be produced, The Wake of Jamie Foster, in 1982. It was one of those plays that people say, closed on opening night. That was not true. New plays never close on opening night. They always run 24 performances. That legally allows the writer to keep the rights to his or her play. I can tell you that it's the longest 24 performances in your professional life. You play to half-empty houses. People who come earn no bargain. Some of the audience members are angry that they bought tickets in advance for a flop. Others have a copy of the killing New York Times review and are reading it to their friends out loud before the play begins. I learned a lot from that show. Not about being in a flop, because I never considered the play a flop. I learned something far more terrifying. It was all a roll of the dice. Time magazine reviewed the same production of The Wake in Hartford, which we had done just a few months before. They called it the best play of the decade. Every performance was sold out with standing ovations at the curtain. After our Broadway opening, I was left asking myself, what happened? Who knows? But the experience taught me that success is made up of varying degrees of hard work, quality, and luck. And there is no way to safeguard against whimsy. I decided going to Broadway was not a path to a better career. It was a destination and a fate unto itself. I tossed and turned some more. I thought about the practical problems of doing a play in New York. What would they pay me? Where would I live? Los Angeles is a very expensive place to raise children, especially if one of them skateboards. New York is worse. I was sure however much they were going to pay me, it would be less than what I would make at home in a film or on television. The next day, I called my agent. I got some answers. Mornings at Seven would be directed by the brilliant Dan Sullivan who was adept at turning almost any type of play into a hit. The cast would be some of the best ever on Broadway. Estelle Parsons, Francis Sternhagen, Piper Laurie, Elizabeth Franz, Christopher Lloyd, Buck Henry, Biff McGuire. For my girlfriend Myrtle, they had asked Julie Haggerty. One of the best comedic actresses I had ever seen. Lincoln Center would put me up in a two-bedroom apartment close to Central Park. They would pay for my plane flight out to audition. I was overwhelmed. How could I possibly say no? Then came the bad news. My salary would be $1,500 per week. Now, that would have been a princely sum B.C., before children. But if you take that money and remove 20% for commissions and my agent and my manager, 40% for federal and state taxes, minus the cost of maintaining two households, you start getting into red numbers very fast. My commitment was open-ended. It would be impossible for me to do other work. It meant Anne and I would go broke. It would cost our entire savings from our 15 years of marriage if the show were successful. And if it wasn't, it could wreck my career. I told my agent I would think it over. He said, I couldn't think about it very long. If I was interested, I had to fly out for the audition in three days. And there was one more thing. The audition came with a string attached. Lincoln Center said they would only pay for my flight out for the audition if I agreed to all of the terms ahead of time and would accept the job if they offered it to me. My agent said talk it over with the family. Because once I agreed to get on the plane, if they wanted me, it was a done deal. I hung up the phone and came downstairs. I told Ann we had to talk. We sat face to face in the study. I told her the facts. At best, it meant we would lose everything. For the next year, she would basically become a single mother with two children, and I would be living on the other side of the country, alone. We would live on long distance. There was a silence of indeterminate length. Anne looked at the floor and said quietly, You have to do it. It's why we became actors. It's why we're alive. Once again, the arena had changed. The place where we arrive unprotected and unprepared. But sometimes we get one chance to do what we always dreamed about doing. It's like having a beautiful horse. A champion. You never want him to be bound by your limitations.
0: That was The True Arena, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowski, and you're listening to The Tobolowski Files. Stephen, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet this week?
1: Yeah, David, I think you can go to uh, com, and you'll see a single that I wrote for uh, Kindle called Cautionary Tales. And also uh, just... Uh, how do you reach me, David? I have no idea.
0: Well, you can find all of the podcasts at <laughs> TobolaskiFiles.com, and you can also find information on upcoming live shows and events at Facebook.com slash Stephen Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolaski Files. We'll see you later. Adios.